Cool. So take two because I never hit record. Awesome. Hey, everybody. Mark D, IT guy, dad, and generally bad movie nerd here. Like GLaDOS, I'm still alive, but like Cave Johnson, I am taking the lemons and trying to burn life's house down. But let's talk about this movie. This movie is a little bit about reaching out, but maybe more about finding your group or family or tribe or whatever you may want to call that. It's about meeting an urge or a need. It's about finding the kind of environment that fits that kind of person. You know, it's no secret that I find this world fascinating, and I've, I've talked about it more than a little bit in the episode on sneakers, but this movie is on, on my list in a different way, maybe. It has a certain flash, a panache, a certain character, or maybe several characters that are wild and energetic, endearing, enchanting. These were characters that I was never bold enough to live up to. These were the characters in the 1995 movie Hackers. I picked up the Shout Factory Blu-ray, but you can stream this in HD right now on Amazon Prime in the U.S. But now a word from our sponsor. Are you paranoid? Paranoid that everyone's coming to get you? You may be right. My sister wasn't abducted by aliens, but she thinks she saw a ghost one time. I saw a UFO one night, lying in my bed, trying to go to sleep, puberty raging looking out my window. I see a large golden light being chased, yes, chased, by two actual airplanes in the southern sky. That was a UFO because I am telling you this because I have done the research and they're going to be watching and listening. But you can prevent them from watching and listening using X-Files VPN. I'm using it right now. Listen. I have a master's degree in this. I've studied it. I talked to Chris Carter and he said, and I quote, get the fuck away from me. And then he called the cops on me because I was so close to the truth that this VPN is the real deal. Head over to vpn.x.files and use coupon code Scully! Tell your friends. We're on second thought. You never saw this. This didn't happen. You tell anyone, you're a dead man. Trust no one. So, Hackers, released in 1995 and directed by Ian Softley, written by Raphael Moreau, Raphael, I guess. By the numbers, Hackers wasn't terribly successful. Estimated budget of $20 million with shooting in New York City and London. Opening weekend, USA Box was $3.1 million, and gross USA was $7.5 million, which is Strange and unusual to me, but I would venture a guess and say that the exhibition landscape was very different in 95. Reading between the lines, because I genuinely feel that everyone who worked on this movie really loved it, at least, at least everyone who has spoken more about it after the release that I've come across. There's a certain aspect of that that I would like to get into, but I think that I'll wait, I'll wait until the end to look more into it, or to examine it. The opening of this movie is is wild. The cold open is a facsimile of what occurred with the Morris Worm in 1988. I learned about this when I was a kid reading a book called uh, Cyberpunk, Outlaws and Hackers on the Computer Frontier by journalists Katie Hafner and John Markoff. It's a pretty cool book, and while this is not an ad, it's currently available on Kindle Unlimited if you have that going on for you. But the opening is somewhat shocks you with this revelation that kids can affect great change 
in the world of the internet. And while in the case that this turned out bad, I, I think that the movie's thesis is that this isn't necessarily or always a bad thing. But again, saving that, you know, for later. The credits play over aerial photography of Manhattan that then slowly fades into a circuit board with animated electronic pulses. And this, on the Blu-ray, totally holds up because it's a goddamn practical. Peter Chang was the visual effects director, and this crew made so many practicals in this movie that still completely, 100%, hold up in restoration because they're actually maniacal. Nowadays, it would be trivial for an effects house to pull these shots off, but in 95, it was completely wild. They pulled aerial footage and then created it in miniature from survey data, a replica of the path of the plane of Manhattan in a circuit board facsimile, and then used a motion-controlled camera to match pace with the film and then do a straightforward fade. But it looks so good because it was, you know, actual shots, not ancient renders of a pre-Toy Story era. The song and the songs, the soundtrack, I will leave for later, is Halcyon On and On by Orbital and... I used to listen to a lot of music and my parents had basically given up on trying to control that and I'd have music on while I'd have music on while playing and watching TV and video games and my attention span seems to have become much too focused for that now or or less powerful as it would be in my old age but long story longer I listened to a lot of music and Orbital was in that rotation from hearing this song in this movie but also for their effort on the Val Kilmer movie, The Saint, which I also totally love and will tackle at one point in the future. Uh, maybe tomorrow, right? But Orbital exudes this this feeling, this emotion, this, this something that really strikes me at my core. This song specifically helped me get through through being a teenager, uh, feeling hopeless. This song, this song gave me hope. This song made me think that this is what happiness sounds like, the energy to stay up online all night looking for that thing, that, that epiphany, that proof, that hidden knowledge that would make me worthwhile. Again, in my old age, these these feelings are, are perhaps lessened or stunted or just tempered with experience and subsequently more reasoned in response, but it played a part of my life and I really think it plays a part in this movie and it somewhat gives us in a very abstract way the thesis of the movie. We learn that our protagonist and sometimes yes and sometimes no audience surrogate, Dade Murphy, who was the child sentenced to be unable to use a computer until he was 18, is both turning 18 and flying to New York with his mother, father noticeably absent, in a single parent arrangement that was motivated by what I think may be economic reasons, somewhat danced around in, in the movie as his mother explains that she didn't want to take this job in New York, but there was no other real choice in the matter. Or she didn't want to sell the house, you know, that kind of thing. And I know I'm summarizing this shit, but it, it's kind of important. This is the setup, right? He turns 18 and on the button sets up his computer. More on that at some point later. And I'm thinking that there's a, too many talking points and I should have had a table of contents. Uh, and turns on the TV and then goes right at it. He uses some hip shit calls himself Eddie Vedder on the fucking phone and legit social engineers a phone number a modem number similar to Cameron in, in Ferris Bueller's day off talking to Peterman Peterman uh, at the TV studio so he can one would assume laterally traverse the network and watch 
what he's feeling versus the late night or public access stuff on TV. And this is really specifically called out when it's some kind of like racist infomercial type thing called America first. And they show the tape library and the tape for that bullshit comes out. The robot goes right towards the outer limits 104, right? Which in looking it up, looks like it would be season one, episode four. And it would be the October 7th, 1963 episode called the man with the power, which legit sounds a lot like the plot of an X-Files monster of the week episode where a professor develops a brain implant to give people telekinetic power. And while he's like kind of coming up out of obscurity and he's gaining his popularity, he also comes to find that his subconscious has been using that power to take revenge on basically all the people that dissed him. And this is interesting because, you know, one, it's, it's very deliberate. That wasn't chosen by accident. You can see the, the name of the tape. And two, this telekinetic power as we are seeing is essentially an analog for, for hacking or for being in control of a computer. Dade Murphy has used the phone lines to exert his will over physical objects over a distance due to the increasing ubiquity of interconnected devices. We take that shit for granted now, but in 95, this was king shit. We don't even have fucking tape libraries, I'm sure. Those little robots digitize all this stuff, and it's like in half a rack of storage appliance, but that's it's neither here nor there. This theme, though, that this power could be used for evil and that even our own inner conflict could lead to it being used in a in negative ways is maybe part of the thesis of the movie that doesn't get explored in an overt way, but in a lot of the subtext. They do some bad shit, but it's mostly two bad people, but there's definitely a lot of ways that that power like that can break uh, scanners. The movie probably would have been a better analog. And I think that I'd already seen scanners because of Garth from Wayne's world freezing up on TV and their camera guy comparing it to that scene in scanners where the guy's head blows up. He's like, you ever see that part in scanners when the guy's head blows up? Um, you know, also maybe count zero in the Gibson novels and that'll be coming back around at some point. But the point is here that Dade is our, our guide into Dade's world right now. But his world is about to get rocked. He hasn't used a computer in years, and they've become more common, and more people like him have used them. So as he's watching The Outer Limits, he gets a message on his console, and it's another hacker. <laughs> you know, as, as they do, it's another hacker, and they have a hacker fight within the tape robot intercut with old TV fight scenes. And you can see him typing in his mirror shades and, and shit-talking the other hacker with his catchphrase, you know, mess with the best and die like the rest. But he gets disconnected with a shit on me. And uh, a realization that he's not a big fish in this massive pond that is New York. And I will take this opportunity to point out that Peter Chang also worked on and supervised the computer screens that you see in the movie. And he made them way fucking cooler than they ever would have been. Instead of having like a fucking wild black and yellow UI with nuclear symbols and skulls with patches and a, a big dial button, it would have like at the most extreme best been a wind pop a wind message pop up. More than likely it would have been a legit echo to his, you know, TTY or teletype. And not even in color. So the movie has done several things here, and by nine minutes and twenty-three seconds in we have even established that he's still a virgin and not a knockout with the ladies. This is including credits runtime. 
But running this back down, we also know that his history is that he's very skilled and, and uniquely smart and that his mom is whip smart, but also a smart ass. We know that he's a hacker. We know that he can hack. We know what hacking can do and, and how it can affect the world around us, which, again, wasn't necessarily common knowledge in 1995. And we know that other hackers live in the city who are just straight better than him. And that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a whole lot that we have picked up in less than 10 minutes. We also know that this isn't like um, a documentary or a textbook look, but it's more an adventure of youth, of curiosity, of passion, and ultimately, in some ways, justice. Shortly thereafter, we know what's on the line for Dade, going to college, uh, which at the time meant a lot. From here, we move on to introducing New York, which is in itself a character, and we see people rollerblading, which was just super hot shit in 1995. I was rollerblading in 1995, falling down and busting my ass. Um, there are two more scenes real quick that I do want to talk about before I can stop this uh, linear and slower than real-time breakdown of a movie that that's when Dade meets Kate Libby. And uh, he has a really strong reaction, and memory serves. It's an appropriate reaction, right? And when a soaking wet Dade comes down from the roof and sees Kate in the hallway and also has a visceral reaction, but this time of rage. In this, these moments, they to illustrate these reactions, they kind of crash montage a bunch of like old TV shows or old movies in the first one it's mostly about kissing and the camera as well as Dade's eyes are really focused on on Kate Libby's mouth and in the second one it's fighting murder rage which one would assume are the the feelings that he has at the moment that as he's been so thoroughly and utterly humiliated and, and betrayed by someone he just met this leads me to an assumption that Seattle is not as vibrant a social scene for a child and maybe that's why his house is so, like, idyllic. And that as a kid who wasn't really popular, he didn't interact with girls or probably others and could not use a, a computer, right? So he watched a lot of TV and, and, and Dade identifies with these old movie clips and, and, you know, these Saturday afternoon, you know, matinees because there really just wasn't any other stimuli in his life or any other way for him to kind of process these feelings. You know, I definitely watched, you know, shows and I think back to my life and I've, I've been on the internet since I was a child and it has given me so much in terms of information, experience, socialization, and entertainment. I definitely watched shows in syndication and and those Saturday movies and Sunday movies when I was younger. Uh, but being online really hit full swing and multiplayer games were popping. And that's where I put most of my time. And that's like a weird insight to Dade. But I've wanted to point this out because these kind of montages never happen again. Like at all. They just drop it. They do, they do three and they're done. And I'm just like, hmm. I, in the first ten minutes we see it three times. But to never have a return seems unbalanced at first blush. But if it is tied to his frame of reference or his, you know, his worldview, which gets hugely expanded by being and participating in vibrant New York City and more specifically in 
the insanely cool hacking social scene, then this would make sense without needing it to be explicitly mentioned. You know, Phantom Freak isn't going to ask Dade, hey, how's your, your weird TV visions going, my dude? Uh, at any point, you know, that's not a conversation that, that would come up. But, I mean, it could come back around later if, if not, you know, or if it doesn't, whatever. Uh, but I'm going to drop the scene by scene at this point because it's just, it's a lot. And there's so much to get into with this movie. We've been looking at shit with a microscope for a hot minute. So let's just, let's zoom it out. Let's bring it out. The story has a lot of attention paid to it. Script supervisors were doing work. Edits were consistent. I don't think that I remember anything glaring except the one thing that Emmanuel Goldstein points out at the end of the special featurette, uh, Keyboard Cowboys, a look back at the making of Hackers, that is on the Shout Factory Blu-ray, in that he mentions that there was never a scene of them getting Phantom Freak out of jail. A huge observation, I guess. I had always, I had always assumed that this had happened shortly afterwards, and dealt w more with the lawyers than with our, our teen hacker couple of crash and burn. I feel like a lot of the setups were were paid off and vice versa. That nothing really came out of thin air. That was not just part of not knowing how computers in that universe worked. And even then, the the dramatization was just that. You know, it was changes to make the movie a better movie and this didn't come out of ignorance or apathy uh educated motivated changes i've always felt this way about the movie and actually i mean i wish that i had computers that fucking sick growing up but alas it was not meant to be the actors definitely had a lot of work to do to catch up and it would be very fair to say that uh, most people didn't know much about computers at all in 1995 so you know for someone focused in on the arts the expectation would be even less and even that the one point where the one point where i actually cringe a little bit it's still roughly factual but the actors and maybe the crew and the director had had never heard someone deliver those words in that sequence so there's no real advice on how to proceed other than get the take that looks and sounds the best, right? The characters and and maybe another theme of the movie are more than just jargon-spewing encyclopedic inferiority complexes, but are deep characters of varied backgrounds with different motivations. There was a lot of representation in this movie, and I guess this is now the obligatory... If you've ever said, get politics out of my movie warning that if you've ever said that phrase and meant it, you just you won't like what's coming up. So just just cover your ears or or switch podcasts. Um, so going back to that, there was a very decent amount of representation in this movie, which Ian softly commented on by saying that this is what the youth of New York looked like to him. There's a lot of androgyny in the characters and in the fashion, a, a fluidity of sexuality in a time where this still wasn't generally accepted, but maybe that's it too, right? Maybe this is an authentic but dramatic portrait of the youth at the time coming up at the edge of this, this change of this massive erosion of the past age by the coming tide of the digital revolution. And one day we wake to find ourselves on the beach 
of a new age. Cyberdelia, in a way, is the nexus of this, and it's a, it's a fucking banging club with a skate park built in empty pools and vendors outside selling cool shit. They're even playing a demo version of Wipeout on a PlayStation. For fuck's sake, the game wasn't out yet. There were zero clubs in 95 with video games that I knew about, and it is perhaps the era that we're living in now, where barcades are en vogue and TV wall is passe versus cutting edge, you know, like... These group of hackers become upon discovering criminality, hacktivists, in a real way. I mean, I wouldn't call it corruption more than I would call it criminal ignorance on the part of a Secret Service agent, Richard Gill, played by Wendell Pierce. I don't think there's any money involved. But in a way, this was characteristic of the world at the time and can still be said of the world at this time on many occasions. The corruption of the multinational conglomerate, Ellington Mineral, is something that maybe we've known about for a long time but it's embodied by the sellout hacker who isn't cool enough to go by his handle and needs to insist upon being addressed as such. And even then, uh, the agent played by Mark Anthony, yes, the two-time Grammy and six-time Latin Grammy award-winning recording artist Mark Anthony, El Cantante himself, is actually very fucking cool and may even have been a hacker himself. He was at the party at Kate's house and... He's like getting down and he's like loving it. And he was also hype to the mentors uh, hacker manifesto featured in the movie while the other agent was repeating the word manifesto as if it was a, a communist word. I didn't really get that when I was a kid, but it's a bit that reinforces how square the squares are in a way, how little initiative is taken to connect to these people and how easy it might be to vilify them. This is like punk rock or heavy metal. This is like the Beatles. Cyberdelia is the exchange for all of this. We're not watching a movie of people dialing into an ISP or a BBS, but instead meeting and feeding off the energy. Matthew Lillard said in critiquing his own performance that energy is electric to watch. And I feel that this is just, you know, nitro, youth energy. and That's an offspring reference projected onto tomorrow, but coming from 1995. And yeah, maybe that's a lot. Maybe it's too much to put on this movie, but maybe it isn't. It didn't do numbers in the box office, but it captivated me the moment that I saw it. And it's been one of those movies that I'll rewatch relatively often. In my worst times, I compared myself to the characters in it and found myself so disappointedly lacking but in my better times, I understand that, that these are characters whose aim is to inspire and engage, and that the idea that corporations are the government wasn't necessarily foreign at this time. Obviously, we had Gibson and Stevenson and all the other cyberpunk writers, but the, the presentation of this movie isn't Johnny Mnemonic or Tank Girl or any type of post-apocalypse, but more next week. In a world that isn't awful and in the 90s in the U.S., that wasn't too wild to expect. Framing this in a way that gives them more underground credit as when the army of hackers comes in at the end, they're in a cafe in Paris or in a bar in Berlin or anarchists in Italy. And that is also an on-your-left moment. But they're young, they're old, every color, every nationality. 
and it's irrespective of the societal conventions of the time, but in a quiet and gentle way. The battle cry is a phone call or an email, right? The war horse is a, is a laptop. The weapon is your mind. That might be a bit melodramatic, but this isn't a gritty neo-noir. It's almost closer to a sword and sorcery fantasy of, of, of bright souls in a society that has maybe yet evolved to be capable of embracing them. And it's about how they find each other and band together to right a wrong that has been done upon many, or that could be done upon many, as it, as it were. I do feel like some of the movie got cut and the edit probably made it a lot tighter, but I'm so genuinely curious to know what got left out, how it would have been. You know, release the internet cut, which is just every fucking film frame so we can pour over it as if it were a message from the people that we became in an alternate timeline. There's a lot of dates, time in New York that seems accelerated. Like he says what's up to the merchants outside of Cyberdelia, but he's never been there. He has fostered this desperation in, in the search for the mysterious hacker Acidburn that we really don't see any interaction with Acidburn other than the one event in OTV. There was, according to several accounts, a lot more of the party at Kate's house that was shot and never made it into the film. My favorite thing that I found that was dropped was from an interview with HackersCurator.com and Darren Lee, who played Razor, where he spills that they filmed a fourth wall breaking sequence where they hacked into the movie theater, or I would guess the movie itself, right? As Razor and Blade in character and interact with the audience. A lot of the interior shots were actually shot in London or in Pinewood Studios specifically with one or two external locations that I found, like um, the Cyberdelia interior is a bathhouse or Kate's apartment. So it would seem that there's a greater financial scheduling liberty there to shoot the things that maybe wouldn't have made it into the movie. And we're missing some potentially interesting story threads in some potentially boring interior locations. You know, this movie is, is dashing and stylish and mobile. Even in the one scene where they are doing a deep dive into, a, you know, a decompile and trying to make sense of the worm, right? The worm, quote unquote. It's a time lapse and, and the fencing payoff comes back because they pull out Kate's foil and they start messing around with it and, and sword fighting and things. And, you know, so Kate's class list includes fencing and like three languages. Apparently the school they filmed at was a magnet school that was tough to get into. So the subtext there, which might've been a boring interior with his mom that they cut is that Dade had to test into a high school for geniuses, right? In the interviews with uh, Martha Pinson and Diana Dill, who were the script supervisors in New York and London, respectively, it seemed that the script was fairly ironclad in New York and had movie production standard revisions and rewrites in London, which is all me kind of confirming my bias. But ultimately, you know, I just I want to see more more scenes in this movie. I may not have liked it as much with those scenes in it. But I'm definitely curious to know. The scripts online that I've seen are transcriptions of the movie. And as far as I can tell, and, and I may need to like look at them a little more thoroughly, but it's all just the same stuff I saw 
I saw a picture of what seemed to be a script with a little more edge on drug use that definitely was not in the movie, and I'm wondering if that's an actual early draft. Hackerscurator.com, in an interview with uh, Ethan Brown on YouTube, Nandemo guy says that he got access to an early draft, and I'd be curious to see it, but as far as I know, it hasn't been made available. The cinematography was also Tony Scottish, or Tony Scott-like, as, as it were. Um, you know, the camera's only really static and maybe some establishing shots, like the exterior of, of Cyberdelia and a couple of others, but I feel like when it's on a tripod, it's it's a pan, or, or at the very least, the characters are walking into or away from it. I may be exaggerating a little bit there, you know, as I'm sure there's some dialogue where, where you know, sometimes the, the side of a conversation is, is too short to really move the camera or you don't want to disorient the viewer. But um, I, I really think to the camera rotating around Kate and Dade as she pitches to Razor and Blade and how gorgeous that lighting was and how serious her performance was. That's a good shot, I think, that shot of... of the plague skating into the Gibson room with the motion control camera dollying backwards was then double exposed so that the, the storage pillars, I guess, could be hand animated. But what the fuck would you call those things? I'll, I'm, I'm going to stick with storage pillars, right? Since that's maybe the, the most appropriate name for them. Um, and I don't fully believe that. I think Ian calls them the database or the, you know, something like that. But I'm, I'm whatever. The lighting in the movie isn't always super dramatic, but it does serve to bring out the vivid wardrobe and the bright colors of the sets and the locations. Uh, Ian Softly mentioned that they were using a slow film stock and had to shoot in, in very bright and one would imagine hot, right? Because LED wasn't a thing in 95 lights. Um, really bright lights, so, you know, the joke was come to set wearing sunglasses. And I guess to kind of recap that right we're gonna we're gonna talk about film stock for a second but like the film right the film the thing that you put in the camera to to get the picture on it it's called film stock in the biz right and if you're not in the biz you know film has a rating or a speed it was kind of a measurement of how fast it can absorb light this uh on a box of photography film like if you went to the pharmacy would be a number like 400 or 100 which, you know, back in the film days was called ASA. A film with an AFC of 400 is four times as quick as a, at absorbing light as a, you know, a, a 100 film. So it's a linear kind of rating. It's not called an ASA anymore. So you won't see that on like a modern camera, but you will see ISO. And ISO is kind of a different measurement, but it uses the same like numbers. It uses the same rating system. So they're interchangeable in that way. Um, if you really want to get juicy on how different stocks absorb different colors at different speeds and how the development affects overall contrast and, and the like, this isn't that podcast. It's a good discussion. It's a great discussion and it is fun, but it is also, it is also almost completely academic unless you have, I mean, hundreds of dollars and, and many of hours to go shoot test charts. Right. So, you know, moving on from there, right. Uh, an ISO or ASA of 400 is a very general film that could be used in most situations, but would probably need a flash or, I don't know, synthetic lighting indoors, synthetic um, additional lighting indoors. Not synthetic. You can't synthesize light. You can produce it 
I don't know, energy, right? Matter, wild, physics. Obviously, um, you know, there are some adjustments that you can make with a photographic camera, such as uh, opening the aperture or f-stop, right? As if you're in the biz, the f-stop, the aperture. You can open that a few more clicks or, or extend the shutter time or, you know, make the shutter slower, stay open longer. It's, um, that's mostly rated in, in fractions of a second, but, you know, many newer film photography and digital cameras can do shutters of up to 30 seconds with a B or bulb setting that will just keep the shutter open as long as the, the shutter is activated by holding the button down or using a, a cable release or electronic release. And again, this is like another podcast I'm going to try to... Anyway, cinema cameras and cinema lenses are different in that you can't just... You can't just set a different shutter angle, you know, uh, which is cool talk for amount of time that the shutter is open relative to the speed of the film, right? Because the film is running and the shutter is rotating. And um, and if you change the, the speed of the film, you're changing the frame rate of the action so you're, that you're filming, right? So uh, that's not a normal thing to do to adjust for lighting conditions and would make things play back fast or slow, right? So you want to keep your 24 frames. So you can open the T-stop, which is like an F-stop, but not on a clicky ring usually it's declicked and based on an actual measurement versus a, a formula on, on the lens but this also and that means that like it's always the same you know whatever focal length and and stuff like that you always get the same exposure when you go for you know t whatever so t 2.2 is t 2.2 on a 12 20 30 90 millimeter lens and in, in photography it's actually a little different because the f-stop is is a a thing based on the, the focal length. It's just the whole, it's a whole thing. Again, not this podcast. I'm sorry that I keep doing this. I will try to stay on task. Um, so you can open the T-stop, but that just gives you a shallower depth of field. And that's, you know, we talked about depth of field in American graffiti um, in that it's how much is in focus. And when you open it up a lot, you get, you know, just a couple of inches you know, range of inches away from the camera of, of, of focus and missing focus. Like that's why in movies and we don't see this, right. But in movies, uh, scenes are done many times over and over and over, depending on the director, the performers and technical complexity. It could be hundreds of times for, for one line of dialogue, if you can dig that. So having a, a shallow depth of field makes that difficult and you focus is critical when things go out of focus everybody knows and then it seems amateurish and bad unless it's motivated or on purpose um so in the american graffiti episode they had to actually bring in a guy to do lighting for the movie uh, haskell wexler who's a pretty famous cinematographer not famous necessarily but uh, popular and good um for that movie because the Filming in natural light was just not an option, right? They needed to be able to close down the, the aperture of the lens, the T-stop, make the T-stop number larger to get more in focus. You know, in American Graffiti, they used pretty fast film, which maybe was even pushed a little bit, but getting that additional speed, they could close the aperture down and they could have just more. It could, it could be fine. There aren't really hard focus racks or anything in this movie. And shallow depth of fields, you know, can be a style. It can be motivated by the narrative, you know, like a character being figuratively nearsighted 
or a character being so self-centered that only they are in focus, or a character so fixated on something as to be blind to all else. You know, these are just kind of thoughts off the dome. And let's not even go into split diopters. Uh, so it's mostly not it's mostly not shot at a huge aperture, and it's like a normal 24 frame, so it's a very average movie in terms of what it's being shot on. But, you know, the monkey wrench is that the film is very slow. So 400 is pretty normal, and looking at shotonwhat.com, I'm seeing a lot in the range of 200 to 600 based on their names. Another good side effect of having a slow stock or, or pulling your film, again, you know, different podcasts, is that you may get better dynamic range and um, a smaller grain, a tighter grain, which tends to give you sharper, brighter colors and an image, uh, you know, that there's a thing called uh, acutance, which is like the edge sharpness or edge contrast. So it's a really bright image. And uh, Andre Sekula, I don't know how to pronounce that. He's a Polish guy. There's an L with a line in it. He was the DP on this movie and was the, the person who would have chosen the stock, right? Well, on shotonwhat.com, they have a film stock for, they don't have a film stock for hackers, but they, um, they do have other of his movies. So I checked those out. And they tended to be Eastman EXR 50D slash 5245, which is a 35 millimeter color negative as opposed to a slide film or any other random esoteric shit. Rated at 50 ASA, but rated at 12 ASA in tungsten. You know, it's that color thing. Tungsten lights were not unheard of at the time. Like people use them because it's super high output. And based on my memory of New York City, the street lights are, are mostly like sodium lights or something like that that are orangey yellow. They kind of wipe out colors, but, you know, filming with incandescent film lights could still get, like, good color reproduction without the background being a hot mess, maybe. You know, at least I would think so. I'm not a professional filmmaker. I'm just kind of jumping at occasions to look smart, like doing this whole podcast thing, am I right? But yeah, 50, you know, or 12 ASA is, is, is ponderously slow for a movie shot primarily at night. So much so that I would I would think that they would have used something else for the exteriors. But this is all I've managed to uncover so far. And I've shot 25 ASA film, black and white, and it is gorgeous. But holy shit, you can't just take any picture. You really have to think about it, right? So some productions will even go so far as to replace streetlights that will be in the shot temporarily just to make it work for the shoot. And that could have happened too, you know, if they, if they did it for American Graffiti, well, they could do it for hackers, you know? That's what I always says. Did it for American Graffiti. Um, that was a bad voice. That's not a good voice. Uh, you know, but uh, this director of photography, whose name I will not butcher again, uh, was coming off of a savage run of movies as he DP'd for Tarantino. And he worked on Reservoir Dogs, which was... In black and white, so maybe not that relevant, but um, he also worked on Pulp Fiction and Four Rooms, and those movies looked great, if memory serves. I haven't seen Pulp Fiction in a few years, but I, sh I should have it on the show at some point. Um, he also went on to do American Psycho, which had this like really interesting sterile vibrancy. Vibrance? Vibrance? Sterile vibrance? If you can dig that. It's like really cool and put together, but actually just like bursting at the seams. But anyway, you know, this is the, the, the pop and the pow and the kablamo required 
to really illustrate these characters on a screen. So the movie, if you look at it like a sword and sorcery fantasy, could be taken to make Dave Murphy, a.k.a. Zero Cool, a.k.a. Crash Override. Zero Cool definitely being the better handle. Is maybe a boy on the cusp of being a man whose village was lost to, to raiders and his family shattered. And in the fantasy book, Ellingson Mineral Corporation would have, like, fracked his house down or something, but this isn't quite as small and tied up a world as a stereotypical fantasy book would be. And the disclaimer is I haven't really read any fantasy in years, and the last I read was, like, the Elric of Mel Melnebony stuff, and I, I wasn't super into it, but it tied into the, the Vorpal Sword thing, a, a key MacGuffin in the book You by Austin Grossman, which is maybe one of my favorite books ever and is not a 40-hour, 1,000-page, you know, slog, or not slog, but effort. So that's not the case. Um, he escapes with his poor mother, who, who manages to find means to support them as his abilities start to manifest themselves in a very real way. This would be a society where these abilities would be frowned upon, but he meets other youths with similar abilities and varied ages, origin stories, and circumstances. And they discover that the, the Hand of the King also has their abilities, but is, is using them for evil. And has discovered that, that they've discovered them through some connection. And now he must target and eliminate them to keep his current scheme intact. Dade would be the audience's way into this world, which makes him somewhat bland because the general moviegoer or movie watcher is a bit of a square. You know, I remember getting into a relatively famous club while being not of age and walking into this place of, of trance and energy and then instantly thinking to myself, I, I, I don't belong here. So, you know, that's relatable. Like, you go to a banging party, and you're just like, oh, you know, and, and you go to an amazing club, and the first thing you do is, is jump on the video game. I'm not a genius, and I'm not as good at video games as he is, so already he's, he's outclassed me, and as someone to look up to. Maybe I value those things more than knowing how to look cool while dancing. I don't know. He's got more depth to him than that, though. Like the, the Ginsburg quote that he posts up on the, the board at school is to show his depth, his, his range. As a character, he's not a one-dimensional computer meathead, but instead a well-rounded individual, you know, with a wealth of human emotions, right? And that was a good idea, I think, to, to balance him out. But it doesn't necessarily take front and center in the film you know, maybe that's just the lie that that all of us tell ourselves that we have that we have depth and range and a wealth of human emotions. So maybe he's you know bland, come awesome, wish fulfillment. You know, I'm I'm unsure, but he's a hero ultimately, and with the dark night of the soul and the rejection of the call and and all those things, and I'm about that. I get it. I feel it. 
you know, Johnny Lee Miller is a Scottish actor coming off of train spotting. So that's why his speech pattern is probably just a little mm, weird. I've been to Seattle. No one talks like that, you know, but I get it. Scotland is, yeah, wow. But, you know, we go on to Kate Libby, uh, a.k.a. Acid Burn, is a cool character. This movie will, will never pass the Bechtel test because there are exactly three female characters that almost never meet. Kate briefly meets Dade's mom, but only Dade's mom says anything. If you are mad about that or mad about what's coming up, well, it's your fault. I told you to figure that shit out, like, you know, 30 minutes ago or whatever. Uh, anyway, Kate Libby is, is a badass. Hard-ass, fancy-ass, educated-ass, capable-ass character, and, like, I like all that shit. It's awesome. She has the most balls out of everybody, and, you know... It's not really a women's lib movie, but uh, Kate Libby, whose mother, you know, is a renowned feminist author, is very much, in my eyes, a, a figurehead for that in a time where, where themes like these wouldn't necessarily be welcome. However, you know, this is done in compromise and, you know, Angelina Jolie is a stunning and unique beauty in tandem with being a serious and dedicated actor in the role of the woman who just took a DNA test. Turns out she's a 100% bad bitch, right? That's the, the call and the response. Uh, but the use of sexual appeal is obvious to the standard male podcaster at this point. However, I think it goes kind of both ways in this movie or or many ways in this movie. And uh, there's some aspect to the fashion for Kate's character that I will want to talk about later that is definitely interesting to note. But yes, the fashion has its own section. And if you know me, you know that I have a a body shape that isn't really conducive to fashion. So while it seems like I may dress a bit, you know, slovenly for most occasions, it's mostly because I hate myself. So, you know, go in peace knowing that. But I do absolutely and 100% love the title of Kate's mom's latest book, which is Women Who Love Men Who Are Emotional Amoebas. Because it's only funny when it's true. Ramon Sanchez, or Ramon Sanchez, a.k.a. The Phantom Freak, a.k.a. The King of Ninex, is a wonderful character, and if you were me in 95 and didn't know, Ninex is actually a baby bell. You can go look that Ma Bell shit up. It'll, it'll be fun. You know, but he's like the tour guide. He's the Vincent from Ronin, and he takes Date under his wing when he realizes that Date is quote-unquote elite, and they use the word elite like it has a capital E, and I feel like this wasn't the introduction of this term used this way, but probably led into, you know, 31337 and 1337 and Leet speak, which turned into online multiplayer gaming later on in the 90s, and is just like a, a whole thing that I'm generally super unqualified to get into on so many levels, but, uh, you know, Freak is the first character to really bust the standard mold of, like, cis, straight, white, male uh, movie character. And if you're mad about that, well, I warned you twice. But, um, you know, this is a movie pushing boundaries and representation, and, and Phantom Freak isn't the token gay character. Uh, it's actually not clear, right? I mean, it's also that, you know, serial killers in this mix, too. But uh, it's not clear and never defined and not once set in stone, and I'm all for that. Um, but Freak also gets assaulted by his mom when the cops show up, and that is 
100% appropriate for a Latinx mom. Freak is Puerto Rican, to my knowledge, not just from experience and observation, but I think he has a, a PR flag on his laptop at one point. You know, but shortly after we're formally introduced to the Phantom Freak, the King of Nine X, and um, one one of my favorite things about Freak is when he's like, "Hey, you know, I'm the Freak." You know, he's like, uh, he's completely in disbelief that we don't know who he is, or that Dave doesn't know who he is. I say we because I'm fully believing that, uh, fully believing that Dade the surrogate audience surrogate thing, and he's like, uh, the Phantom Freak, the King of Nine X. And I just, I love his, his delivery there. I know you play the game, right? And then there's a shot of the basketball going into the hoop. And that's the only time they do that, as far as I know. That weird kind of uh, visual pun insert. Um, that's the only one that comes to mind. That, that one stood out. Uh, this isn't a basketball-heavy like uh, thing, but you know, boring interiors versus interesting exteriors in New York. And uh, I think it's called like Stuyvesant or something like that. High school. Uh, and I think that staircase might be like across the street, but it's really cool using New York in that way. And I love, um, I've been to New York for a very brief ter- period of time, but I kind of, I kind of fell in love with it, but in a weird way, like I love hate it. Cause I could, I would probably go insane in New York. Uh, I'm very accustomed to the automobile and personal space and space in general. Yeah. So it'd be, it'd be interesting, you know, like immediately thereafter. We meet Joey. We meet do 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 freak 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 freak. You know, uh, Joey Pardella, aka Joey. You know, if, if if anything, Joey is actually the most audience surrogate out of out of all of the characters because he's the younger kid who who so desperately wants to be cool and he doesn't have a laptop, but he has right. He has Lucy, which is a desktop, which is unadorned. It's it's just very plain Jane. You know, beige. And square, but dearly loved. Like he loves that computer in a, a really weird way. Joey, unfortunately, is 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 more my speed. I'm more of a Joey than a Dade by a long shot. Um, there really isn't much about Joey other than that. Perhaps he's the the most, I guess, faithful and innocent representation of this culture. But but it seems like this movie might be on the USA Network because there are definitely characters welcome, like serial killer Emmanuel Goldstein, aka serial killer is a huge, massive driving force in this movie, right? And Emmanuel Goldstein is named Emmanuel Goldstein because of Emmanuel Goldstein, uh, founder of, of 2600 Magazine, Hacker Quarterly, who was a technical consultant on the film and who came back to do the extra features on the Blu-ray. And what a what a delightful individual. Like, I could just kind of hang out and this dude could talk for a while. He is... He's definitely whip smart and and entertaining. But that's cool. And Emmanuel Goldstein comes from the movie 1984 or the movie 1984. I'm such a fucking animal. The movie I just said, the movie 1984. That that just left my mouth. I am an idiot. Never ever once think to yourself that I am smart. I am so fucking dumb. Uh so Emmanuel Goldstein comes from the book 1984, that's not his real name. His real name is Eric Corey. But Emmanuel Goldstein is a cool name for a cool guy, right? So kind of like picking your own name. You know, a little more like medium. I don't know if the Wachowskis really like got into that too or they saw that thing with the Matrix and 
you know, why Neo's kind of like a hacker and they're like hackers, but they're also like becoming themselves. I don't know. It's a whole thing. Matrix, another movie I'm going to talk about one day. Matthew Lillard brought a strong, chaotic energy to this character and has subsequently earned like all of my favorite quotes. Like when he's like, this isn't Woodshop. And, um, all, all artists that asphyxiated on their own vomit, you know, which is a quote that, that I might need to check, but I believe that is the, the, the quote. Um, but Serial has a whole backstory that isn't quite as fun or, or, or pleasant, which Lillard kind of talks about in the, in the keyboard Cowboys. And, you know, it really rounds out the character for me in a big way, in a huge way. I didn't really even begin to think of what home life was for, for some of them. You know, Dade was definitely monitored by his parents, but in, encouraged by his mother to be smart but safe. I'm sure Kate has a, a very wealthy mother who, you know, no mention of her father kind of at all, who might not always be around because book tours, speaking engagements, and and publicity are a thing, right? The house party kind of clues us into that whole situation. I feel like she's been very independent, very on her own for a long time. Serial's backstory, according to Lillard, is that he has a really bad home life, and he frequently will spend the night outside of his home, right? So he always has a toothbrush with him to be able to brush his teeth in the morning, and that that generally makes me very sad. Like, he, he stays with Freak, he stays with Nikon, and I'd hate to say that, I hate to generalize and, and say that Serial's somewhat erratic, eccentric, and occasionally negative behavior kind of results from that. But while it might not be academically true, it certainly has the ring of truth. Um, he definitely exhibits non-conformative dress and, and behavior that could all be part of how he chooses to have the world kind of view and address him. In the movie, it's set up that Serial frequently stays over at Lord Nikon's place, which is, you know, a refuge in a way. Paul Cook, a.k.a. Lord Nikon has adopted this moniker from having eidetic memory or, as many may know it, photographic memory. I don't know why I had to be so extremely and utterly condescending about that. I could have just said photographic memory, and it would have been fine. It would have landed you know, way better, assuming that you hadn't seen the movie. If you did see the movie and didn't get it, well, I mean, that's a, that, one, that one's on you. Nikon's not in high school, though, uh, and he seems to be the oldest one of the bunch. You know, he's got his own place. He's a, it's not a great building, but he has it. He He's a DJ. He DJs Kate's party, and, you know, he's pulling phone numbers off of the mental Rolodex. And um, that's how we get to know his name is Lord Nikon. He, he shows uh, and tells, as it would be. They say, show, don't tell. He, he, showed, he showed and told uh but lord cannon would have seen dumb and uh you know cannon probably wouldn't have sponsored the movie pan ass sonic <laughs> would have been a good name but um digital cameras didn't really exist yet and they only made some point and shoots at the time that didn't have any cachet right so maybe cannon jumped in if they would have called them like like rebel bass but like bass like a like music because he's a dj but then lucas would have jumped right in and right after that, 
you know, line with a phone number, we also learn that serial killer is judgy as fuck and is like, spandex, it's a privilege, not a right. And, like, dude is just going around assassinating people while wearing, like, a, a size zero tall. You know, like, fuck, man. Even I felt that one. Lord Nikon is actually the only black character other than Agent Gill and uh, really hangs out in a support role and a, a partner role for serial killer in a lot of ways. In all their adventures, if you think of how ensemble sitcoms with six to eight characters kind of split up their stories so that two characters are together for the A story, two for the B, two for the C, etc. You know, if you think of Big Bang Theory, Modern Family, or How I Met Your Mother, those all kind of come to mind right away. You know, then Nikon and, and Serial would probably mostly be together in what maybe would be the a Bash Brothers uh, group if we were to go off TV tropes. Maybe. I don't know. Just saying. But Eugene Belford, a.k.a. Charles Babbage, a.k.a. The Plague. And I'm sorry that my voice is like tanky on me right now, but it's been a long day. And working from home, working remote as it would be, you talk a lot. But yeah, The Plague is, is really a dark reflection of this group. Uh, he's the sellout. He's a sellout hacker. He is the complete foil to Dade. He seems lazy, arrogant, conceited, and maybe more than anything greedy. And, and horny, I guess, too. You know, His wardrobe shows it. Uh, his actions show it. His MacGuffin, right? The thing that he actually wants the most is, is Margot, who's played by Lorraine Bracco, for whom this is not a meaty part. This is a very minor part. And he's ostensibly stealing all of this money just to get the girl, right? Because that's what she seems to be motivated by primarily. You know, he's got fur coats, waistcoats. Uh, he sketches on a limousine to grab a fucking three and a quarter floppy. Like, he's like a weird villain archetype type. You know, it's a whole thing. And the entire per persona is built around it. And, like, while I, I hate the plague, like, I super dig the performance, you know? Pendulette is Hal, right? Like Hal 9000, one would assume. And he's the Plague's minion, I guess. And I think Plague actually calls him that. And, um, you know, it's just fucking wild seeing Pendulette there. It's great. It's awesome. You know, when he calls him, when he calls him Mr. Belford and, and gets corrected and he says, uh, Mr. The Plague, that, that, I love that shit. Um, they make a fun duo, you know, while Margot plays like, Peak Square Meganormy, who only cares about money even more than the plague. Uh, but Hal, Hal's pretty much doing the job. Like, I'm pretty sure he knows the plague is a jerk, but not much else. He's just there to monitor. You know, he's ops. You know, there are a few Secret Service dudes. You know, Special Agent Richard Gill, Agent Bub, and Agent Ray. Richard Gill shows up in the credits as Dick Gill, and that is the best agent bob is is the fuckface like complaining about communists um and agent rays is played by mark anthony and he's like oh you know that's cool that's cool like i can't i can't really do a good impression of his voice but it's something like that um and i think that like i i my low-key headcanon is that agent ray is a hacker and he was at the party for funsies but you never know, um, you know, but 
maybe from all the wrong that they did, maybe he switches teams after the movie ends. You know, maybe part two is, is about him being in, uh, in InfoSec, starting his own company, because that's what you do. Um, he's the tech guy for the Secret Service squad in the movie. Like, Dick Gill doesn't know jack shit. So, you know, that's something that could have played a different more in a, in a different cut of this movie. In an interview with the actor that plays Curtis, you know, he lets us know that at some, play, at some point, the catchphrase, free our data, was, was in the movie. It doesn't really sound great like free our data like fod food um so it, it's not great and maybe that's why it didn't make it in but you know if that didn't what else didn't right uh kill your darlings i suppose um after that we have hmm, i'm sure I'm, I'm sure i'm missing somebody but actually um i actually do want to talk a little bit more about razor and blade because they are definitely those guys uh but that fourth wall break would have been super duper ultra mega turbo cool. And I love wall breaks. Like I, I just do, you know, Wayne's world, uh, Ferris Bueller's day off blazing saddles, black dynamite, anything that acknowledges that it's a movie, even if they don't necessarily talk straight to camera or, you know, refer to the audience. Uh, I love, but I love that shit. Like I love it. Um, in the Hacker's Curator interview with Darren Lee, who played Razor, uh, he says that, I quote, Razor and Blade hack their way into the actual movie theater. Imagine that you are in the movie theater, and suddenly the screen shifts, and Razor and Blade walk out on the screen and interact with the audience. You know, and he follows that up with, there were lines like, oh man, it totally worked, and... Dude, you've got some popcorn between your teeth. I love that stuff. And, and Razor and Blade are fucking rad, right? Because they're elite hackers with headquarters in a bang and dance club. There was a trick. There was a, there was a woman dressed as a chandelier in New York in a club. How do you take that on the subway? Like, how fucking cool. And, you know, they, they might be like the Greek chorus of the movie in a way. You know, because they don't, they don't do a whole lot. Um, but set up how fucking cool hackers can be. And then they also set up television intrusion, right? For when they watch the Razor and Blade show, they know now you know that this can be done and that they do it. Um, so that gives us the, the big resolution to the big action scene. And, um, you know, maybe a sick Easter egg or something. But, you know, there was zero, zero mention of deleted scenes on the disc. Like, the titles aren't there. There's, like, two or three titles total on that disc and I, I know i'm super curious right but i'd love to see what other scenes were in there like i can't stop thinking about it so many questions and i've been at this for a while and i can barely talk right now for some reason and i need to wrap this up but there's just there's so much going on like i'm calling it this is part one this is probably an overly long part one so part two might be shorter this is not a good strategy but this is this is the one that i have chosen right um, so I will see you for part two. Tweet at me at CoolMarkD, CoolMarkD, I can't even say my own name right now. And that is Cool with a C and Mark with a K. Uh, let me know. I'm on Letterboxd as MarkD20, right? So M-A-R-K-D-2-0. Yeah, I really wanted to have more planned out for this, but I just, I don't, 
I am exhausted. It is quite late in the evening. And I must take my leave. Uh, you know, good night. Good luck. Stay safe. I wish everybody the best. I know that it's hard out there right now. Uh, it's hard for everybody in different ways. Don't just, you know, uh, free advice or 10 cents of free advice or whatever the fuck that, that phrase is. Just try to be nice and, and, and try to be understanding. Just because people are different uh, or in a different situation or whatever doesn't mean that their concerns aren't valid. And, you know, if you're mad about this, again, I, this is the fucking, like, third time. You were warned three times. Um, but, yeah, just try to examine, you know, things from, from every side. And also understand that we're in a situation right now where my amateur analysis is that we're, we're kind of in a push and pull, a tension, if you will, of, of two kind of opposing things. And I don't know. I don't know how to fix it. I don't have a solve. I don't have a problem, but just try not to get mad at people and, and check your, your temper and your, your response to things. Sometimes you can't control what other people can do, but you can definitely control your response. Uh, and I also made a tweet of five perfect movies and actually I tweeted six and I could have edited it cause I'm an idiot and Twitter, Twitter doesn't let you edit. Right. But I'm over here on twitter.com slash coolmarkd. And uh, I said five perfect movies. And it, it it took me zero seconds to like pick the top three. But it took me a bit of a minute to pick the bottom three. Zero seconds. Black Dynamite. Hot Fuzz. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. These are all three things that definitely know that they are fucking movies. And they communicate to us, the audience, directly or indirectly. But... The, the wall gets broken. Like, I love shit like that. Uh, bottom three, I put LA Confidential, Groundhog Day, and Clue. And if I had to take one out there of, of there, I don't know. I, I would maybe think Clue, but I also love Clue so much. But I think that Clue might be less perfect than Groundhog Day. I do think that Groundhog Day is very, very perfect. Um, so I'm, I'm not signed in. If I was signed in, I would have gone here and liked my own tweet because I do shit like that. Because then people who might see um, a tweet of mine will be like, oh, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, yeah, also, Party Down. It's a perfect time to watch Party Down. That's an article on the Nerdist. And where is it streaming? Hulu, I think. But yeah, Party Down is on Hulu. And I've not finished watching it, but I, I, it is fantastic. It is super good. So go ahead, check out Party Down. It'll, I don't know that it'll make you feel better per se, because it can be depressing, but it's not Bojack Horseman. Bojack Horseman, I will fucking kill myself if I, if I watch. So Party Down, be nice, be patient, be understanding. Um, you know, what are your perfect movies? I'm curious to know. Uh, in in retrospect, like the top three were solid, but bottom three, I think you know there could be a lot of contenders for that crown. I wanted to put Pulp Fiction, but I don't. I think Pulp Fiction is is pretty perfect in a lot of ways, but yeah, I don't know, I don't know, because it was it was going on feeling as well, like um, 
include Groundhog Day and, and LA Confidential. They made me feel Pulp Fiction. I was too young, right? I don't, you know, do fucking coke or heroin or whatever the hell was was in the little baggie. I think it was heroin. But uh, yeah. All right, that's it. I'll see you next time.